Hi, I'm Steve Leard, and welcome to Cover Meeting, the book cover design podcast where we speak with designers about their work, the industry, and everything else in between. In this episode, we're joined by Suzanne Dean, a creative director who has worked at Vintage Books for over 20 years. She has created covers for iconic titles and bestsellers from The Handmaid's Tale, Entangled Life and Sapiens to H's for Hawk, Atonement and The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. She has also worked with a wide range of fantastic authors, including Haruki Murakami, Toni Morrison and Julian Barnes. Her designs have been recognised by many, including the ABCD Awards, the British Book Design and Production Awards, and the V&A Illustration Awards. This year, Suzanne also won Designer of the Year at the British Book Awards 2023. Suzanne is a highly respected creative director, and her work always beautifully captures the essence of a book. But she also heads up a really talented group of designers, whose output is always so fresh and creative. So I really hope you enjoy this insight into not only her work, but also her team at Vintage Books. Thanks for speaking with me, Suzanne. It, it's great to have the opportunity to chat with, you know, one of the most respective creative directors working in, in publishing today. And to that end, this year, you won Designer of the Year at the British Book Awards. And in your acceptance speech, you thanked Vintage for, for being a fabulous place to create. Um, you've been creative director there now for over 20 years. Is that trust you've been given during that time to essentially play and create give you a truly unique job, not only in publishing, but in design generally? Oh, well... It's lovely to be here, Steve. Thank you very much for inviting me. I do think my job is rather wonderful. And um, I, I do have the opportunity to create and have freedom to play. And that is a hard-won trust over many years, I think, with um, editorial and authors, which on a few projects every year. I give myself a bit more time, get out my paints, um, maybe go out and seek inspiration elsewhere, which is something I'm really keen on, and um, push boundaries where I can. And, um, you know, that's really important to me. And I think that's one of the reasons I've stayed in that job for quite a time, because yeah. it gives me that satisfaction yeah, you don't feel like you haven't felt like you've had to seek anything elsewhere because you're you're being fulfilled creatively exactly. in like so many ways. Exactly, and I've become quite close to quite a lot of the authors, and you know that um, attachment and waiting for their next book and the way you work with them when you know them better um, would be a hard thing to leave. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as creative director, it must give you the ability to to shape the overall look and feel of an entire imprint, whether that's individual covers or series designs, branding specific authors or identity identity design even um, for certain imprints. Obviously, every book is different, but is there an approach and spirit behind every book which underpins all of the design work that comes from vintage? 
I think you should respond to a text, to the truth of the text. Um, and that's what my team does. And that's what we set out to do with every title. We have a huge amount of titles coming through. We yeah. Each of us have about 30 different um, books on the go at one time. And so we try our best. And I would like to think that we succeed. And um, I'm, I'm very passionate about responding to the text and being true to it. Um, I think I'm, I'm correct in saying that you've designed more Booker Prize winning covers than yes. any other designer. I think that's something that I heard yeah. once. Apologies yeah. if, if it is anyone else, but if I'm wrong there. Um, when you're given a brief, and I'm assuming the the editor or, or people working in-house might have an inkling that a book has the potential to be shortlisted, does does that change the way in which a cover is briefed um, no. and considered, or 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 does is it just the same no. same process? I, it's pure luck um, that I've worked on so many Booker Prize winning novels. I think every book of a sort that the editor has, well, they would hope it would be on the Booker list, but it's yeah. so unpredictable that you, you could never brief it like that. Yeah. And there would be so many that would be coming through briefed with that if that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it is utterly chance that that has happened over the years. I guess one of the less talked about aspects of being a creative director or, or art director is the, is the hidden side of the job. Mm. Um, one, of, one, of your, one half of your job is creating fantastic covers for these amazing books. But the other side is is essentially managing the dynamics of a team um, and having to attend meetings and things like that, etc. Is and and this is a skill like in 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 of itself. Um, have you evolved this side of your job oh, over yes. the years? And, and, oh, and can yes. it be, and can it be as rewarding as the more kind of glittery side of what you do? Um, I definitely have evolved over the years. I suspect I was pretty bad at it when I started off I had no experience in running a department at all steep learning curve luckily for me my team all the teams I've had over the years have been a pure pure joy to work with yeah and they're really talented designers and what I like about my team is that they all support each other so if somebody is sick or as well on holiday they all jump in so there's a sort of um machine that's evolved yeah. and there's a, a bit of a camaraderie yes as well. and there's a collaborative nature to the group which helps me because um as soon as that um machine that can just about cope with the amount of titles that we've got going through um is is unbalanced so, for instance, there was a hole while I was waiting last summer for a new designer to start, etc. And just noticing the difference that if you have that hole there, oh boy, did I need the freelancers. <laughs> um, Alex Kirby and Anna Morrison, who came into the, the department, oh, I love them. <laughs> they were so brilliant and they, they just sort of filled the gap. They were wonderful. And actually... Um, in a very roundabout way, what I'm saying is I managed to do my extra 
um, bits of my job and have evolved that because my team yeah. is there as a, as a great support and they all work well as a group. Um, and there is a hell of a lot of um, extra bits, a lot of meetings. Um, the cover meeting seems to take all of Thursday morning and then it takes quite a while to feed things back. So that's a day gone. So quite often I'll find that if I'm working at home, it's heads down. And that's where I get my a lot of my creative work done. And then when I'm in the office, I either get designers shouting for me to come yeah. over and have a chat about something or it be editorial or I'll have to be in a meeting of some kind. So that's how yeah. it kind of balances out. Is that what you imagined would happen? Or? Yeah, I yeah. think so. And it, but, but it must be nice to have that when you when you do work at home to have that space away from the, oh. kind of the noise because it is it's really it, hard to concentrate think, yeah and i think kind of in an email age it's um it, you're never far away from being interrupted from what you're doing are you so exactly. it's nice that you can have that space when you work from home and especially with teams that now you know can call at any time and yes. somebody can pop up it's, it's, <laughs> it's really changed things actually working from home and um with covid and lockdown yeah because it's become much easier whereas i only worked at home one day a week before covid on a friday and and now it can be you know like monday here i am at home (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i mean the the pandemic's obviously changed how we all work and, and does allow people to work at home more often um that's obviously comes with with benefits in in certain ways is is it harder for you to kind of keep track of your team though no, when you're no is it, is it just, just as easy because they will you know call me when they just want to ask something so thank goodness for the internet because that makes it terribly easy and also they can just show me on screen what they're working on and ask for advice but although i have to say going into the office and actually all being there on certain days that we call like an anchor day really helps us all continue to be um, a group that functions very well together. And just having that human contact, you can't beat it for, for that. Um, We, we do these, um, this is slight aside, um, but we do these days out. We have done for lots of years. You can't beat it because everyone takes turns at picking what we're going to go and see. Or it might be a total surprise. We've done um, a series um, for Vintage Classics, which was about deco. And yeah. we didn't tell didn't tell my team. And uh, the picture editor, Lily, and I worked on um, an idea of getting them to a certain place in London. And then we'd, we'd booked a guide who took us around London, made us look up and see all these bits of architecture. And then we were saying, here are the books, pick a book. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're working on our next project and it's such a um a lovely surprise everyone was kind of like whoa wasn't expecting yeah. that and it it those sorts of things are, are just magic well i think it's magic as well because it's so easy to be lazy now isn't it and yeah. just stick to like internet research but there's nothing nothing can can replace actually being immersed in something in itself Absolutely. In, in the way you're describing so I, I think it's really good that you you and your team you know try to get out there as regularly as you can to kind of I don't know involve yourself into all the culture of the city that's around you you know it, it'd be wasted otherwise it's I think we are 
all of us looking at similar kinds of things all the time, Instagram, Pinterest, you know, blogs, and we're all looking at them and we're all seeing the same thing and it's bound to have a sort of imprint on our designer brains, isn't it? That So going out and seeing things, I mean, I'm such a bore about it, that I just think it's so important to see something different and have that bit of inspiration come in. And weirdly, I can almost guarantee that on every trip we do, somewhere down the line, it could be three months later, it could be six months later, it will pop up as in somebody's project if it was oh, that's really interesting. a sort of, um, you know, not direct trip that we've done. Um, it's just brilliant. When you've designed an, an option for a cover or you could be presenting on behalf of an, a, a, another designer even, mm-hmm. but you really believe in a particular approach for a book, um, you know it's in a, an appropriate response to the content um, or it might be something you're trying something new but you come up against some resistance in-house about it and i, I appreciate there's n- there's no one answer here because every title is different <laughs> but how do you go about navigating those fears and hesitations from other departments in those situations because i imagine sometimes a part of your role there's a there's an element of persuasion that's needed yeah absolutely am i going to give all my my tips away and it's an ear from from editorial listening i i think i've um learned that it's best to do the quite a lot of work before the cover meeting and to get people on side and to do a lot of the explaining the groundwork's done i can then present with knowing that that person over there is going to be backing me up. Yes. That's how I, I tend to work it because there are a lot of people at the cover meeting. And if you can't get it through with a certain amount of people supporting you that you've laid the ground rules for, probably it's not going to get through. If yeah. you see what I mean. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. How you deal with the, the tension of how like sales and marketing of your brief and what has gone before and what's worked before and contrasting that with the designer's instinct to make things feel unique. Because often the cover meetings essentially focus on this tension between mm. the kind of commercial and the artistic. And I suppose finding a way to work together to find a balance where everyone's happy mm. is it must be like a, a form a a big challenge and aspect of of your Mm. work as well yeah you're right um certainly briefs have changed in the in the last year i think they're much more considered and um there's a lot more thought gone into exactly where things in the marketplace sit what what kind of books will be sat next to them there will be something called a positioning meeting before where lots of things will be discussed in detail, like yeah. the subtitle, how it works, etc. So by the time it reaches the cover meeting, certain things have been talked about, which you wouldn't necessarily want them taking up lots of time in the cover meeting for, and which makes it more straightforward. I think um, editorial and sales, etc., 
have a language where they communicate what they like and what they want by other covers out there. And that's how they use that language to try to say what they want. Yes. Yeah. Whereas I don't want any designer being asked to copy a cover. That is like, <laughs> I really don't want that. Yeah. So that's what I have to, you know, we have to deal with. I think probably everyone has that. The amount of times I've heard, not just obviously in Penguin Random House, but anywhere, other other um, publishing houses, that you'll get shown a certain cover because it is the cover of the moment. It appears on every brief in the whole yeah. of London. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was only last week, actually, that I said to an, an editor that um, the best briefs are ones that don't ask a designer to copy another cover. Yeah, It's, um, it's good to understand where it sits in the marketplace, yeah, who we're appealing to, to, and then yeah. just let the designer have freedom and um, breathing space to um, to play and experiment. I think play and experiment are where you get something more interesting in the end result. I think you make a really good point about um, those those covers, those comparison covers you get you get on yeah. a brief, and I think people interpret them sometimes in different ways i think exactly. um, depending on what you do yeah and what your yeah. priority is maybe uh, and i think from the designer point of view it's useful to see those covers because you know essentially the the, the cover you're designing for what it's going to be up against and i think the challenge for you then is to figure out a way of making yours stand out in some way Whereas exactly. I think, I think sometimes some people interpret those comparison covers as this is what we want it to look like. Um, and yeah, I'm guessing the kind of the challenge you face quite often is managing those expectations yes. of where those two things meet. Yes. And then I'm in the middle between translating that and saying to the designer, look, this is sort of what, but go, go try that. They're very pleased. Everyone's, but I'm pleased when I'm given freedom, obviously. Um, and that's where the magic happens. I mean, that's why you want to do your job, really, isn't it? When those moments where it, it just, you can tell in your gut that something interesting's happened. Yeah. And and I mean, not every book can be creatively challenging and, and sometimes, but it's nice to have the freedom to, to do something, you know, where appropriate and where you think, you know, new, new ground can be found. Yeah, I think that's, that's really what excites designers and, and I imagine art directors. Absolutely. Yes, managing absolutely. A team, managing a team where you've got, you've got different types of designers and personalities and yes. coming up with all these kind of and different amazing and interesting, yeah, different strengths and coming up with all these interesting yes. concepts and then trying to sell those in, in-house. You know, it must be a really kind of tough balancing act. Yeah, I've never been an art director, so I've never had any experience of having to do that. One of the things um, that has evolved from when I started is that now when I get the briefs, it tends to be slightly more um, open about, you might say to a few people, I've got a, a brief on a train and there's one person you always know or two people who want books on trains because they particularly like trains <laughs> yeah. and so you know that that designer who gets it will really care 
but at the same so there's there's that or there's a connection with an author which is why somebody in my team will get a certain brief or there's someone who's much more commercial than another person so they might get a slightly more commercial brief but I also like to mix it up slightly so that nobody gets in a rut they're not doing the same um the same brief the same genre over and over again i think i've i've read you talk about how cover designers need to capture like an essence of a book mm. and to visually visually translate a book's tone and mood um and this is particularly important with fiction titles so when it's time to show options to the cover meeting, uh, how do you approach revealing what your team has produced? Do you just show the work and hopefully let the work do the talking or do you explain what you've done and give rationales along the way? Because when kind of conveying a tone, there's not necessarily always a right and wrong answer. So I'm just interested in how you manage the cover meeting itself almost. Well, my answer to that is of course the groundwork that you do. The pre-discussions help a hell of a lot. Um, people know the book, they've all read the book. So when you talk about the tone, that's understandable, what you're trying to explain and why you did a certain route or why you commissioned a certain person. And my cover meeting now is not sat around a desk with folded bits of card with covers, photocopies stuck on the side <laughs> of them anymore. It is now digital. So yeah. it's very much, um, you know, you press a button and then the next cover comes up on a big PDF. There is no build-up particularly. Yeah. There's no drum roll. I have to talk as, as they see it. Yeah, You know, the reveal is there and I'm talking, which is why sometimes all that groundwork is very important. I think a lot of publishers have transitioned from analogue to digital cover mm. meetings. How have you found that transition? Has it changed the way that covers are viewed and approved even? Is it, is it, is it, do you find it a, a nicer experience to show work that way or do you think it's, it makes it a bit trickier? Well, it has its benefits in that people on a certain day might be scattered at home or at work, so everyone can join from wherever they are. That is a real benefit, I think. Yeah. And people do like to, other people at the meeting, might reduce the cover to see yeah. what it looks like at postage stamp size on their screen, <laughs> <laughs> which for all those... Um, Amazon pages. <laughs> so, you know, it has changed things from that point of view. I think very often we might get um, a request for larger sizes of lettering or oh, quotes, no, well, you know. know that, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that has made a difference. And also the fact you can be waiting for people to turn up and with, with a cover sat there. Hmm while you're waiting for all these other people to sort of log in. And so but someone might have said something, say that happened last week. Oh, I like the font. That looks great. And then as soon as the other people sit down, I say, 
so so and so just said something would you like to say it? You, you know kind of <laughs> the flow isn't quite the same sometimes yeah I can um and of course you're showing covers that are in rgb very often yeah so it's 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 not always a f- true reflection of colors no, and things like that no yeah. so we know that they look really good on screen and of yeah. course you are going to get covers later you know after they've been approved that are on screen and will be in rgb and looking great digitally but then you also have to transfer it to your analog version yes <laughs> in cmyk and um yeah i've just had one of those where i got very concerned about some blue and wanting it to really do the job and you know yeah. how blue can be quite tricky yeah it's a tricky color but um production have been working really hard and working done an amazing piece of magic and the printers <laughs> with a bit of pantone um but yes, those are, those I think are things I've really noticed happening. On the podcast, I try not to talk about specific covers, but but in, oh, good. In, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but I'm going to make one exception to that because I think it could lead into some interesting insights into yours and others' process. Um, you worked with the illustrator Noma Bar to produce the updated cover for The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and I found it really interesting for the podcast when talking with designers who've worked on covers for classic books and some of the restrict restrictions it it might bring, but also the opportunity to potentially do something different. Um, and Noma Bar's work is just so consistently strong. Uh, what made you think that his work uh, would fit well for the, for the Handmaid's Tale? That was an interesting one because it was dropped into the schedule because mm. of the TV series that was coming. And so I I had the vintage then vintage editor, publisher rather, come in to me and say, this is coming, we're dropping it in, it's really urgent, and here's a few film stills. And so it had um, Elizabeth Moss in her cloak kneeling in a circle and it was seen from above and it was so abstract at first I had had a problem seeing it and then I saw it and then that's when I said I know who I'm going to get to do this <laughs> is that okay you know you, you're on board for this and she went yeah <laughs> go ahead and I suppose none of us quite knew how it would grow that that tv series made such such an additional difference to that book i mean it was already iconic but that somehow gave it an even more kind of cultural significance it didn't did it? It didn't blew it up, even to other people who might not have been aware of the book yes. beforehand it, it really became synonymous i think with, yes. with what people were watching and and interestingly i mean noma works um by doing lots of different options and so actually what came in was it was really hard to choose. There were at least three that were really good yeah. options. And in fact, one was on the back of that, which is the the sort of key. You know, that was yeah, a close, like a close one. Yeah, little shape. Yeah. yeah. And the, the one that made it through with no lettering on the cover, that was a battle. And I can remember that was in obviously the old days of the cover meeting. So... A couple of options were up on the table and everyone was sat round. 
And the sales director said, there is no way that you can have a cover out there without any lettering on it. And I said, it's iconic. Everyone will recognize this image. Everyone. And it was actually that um, the vintage publisher who backed me up at that meeting and the two of us together managed to get, I could, I'm not sure I could have got that through without her no. going, of course it's iconic. You just need somebody else in the room to tip the balance of everyone. Yeah. And that's essentially why it's got debossing on the front of the cover, because that that wasn't enough to, you know, sort of placate them. Yeah. And of course it worked. Never, never work in a bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, just for those who don't know, the, the cover essentially doesn't have the title or author on, but like like you said, it's got like a blind mm. boss worked yes. into the illustration. And I was going to ask it, that there must have, that must have been met with of, with nervousness, and it obviously yes. was. Yeah. Um, and I, I think if if the type had been on there, I think it still would have been a good cover because like the illustration was a really good illustration. But there's no doubt that it by having the type on there it would have taken away from the like the package itself exactly it was so and, powerful yeah without it and so bold and, and i think it's it's actually quite hard to see it now and remember what it was like it coming out all that time ago because of course it felt very different whereas i think now we're we're much more used to the image and it's hard to remember that far back what it was like and i think when when Atwood's subsequent book, the, the Testaments, came out, mm. um, the cover again used the, the brilliance of, of Noma's work. Were there any considerations again to effectively remove the title and, and an author, or, or was that just a step too far? Because this was no, there was whilst, no it, way. <laughs> did you did you ask? Did yes, you, did of course. <laughs> <laughs> there was no way I was getting away with that. Big big new title. <laughs> and um, that was the weird one because um, I didn't have any manuscript. I had just a paragraph. Oh, and so, it was all under wraps. Yeah, it was all under wraps. And I could ask Margaret a few questions. That was it. And then I commissioned Noma. I went away on holiday to Vancouver and the publisher went to um, Indonesia, I think. So yeah. Noma was sketching in on Hampstead outside he tends to sketch ideas there and yeah. sending them to me and I was making notes and then sending them texting my editor in Indonesia who'd say right I'm going to a cafe and then that <laughs> would go all the way over to Indonesia <laughs> for her comments before I, I fed things back to him so but by the time we come back we almost had an illustration ready so we were way ahead of anyone else and that's why basically everyone used it around the world yeah, no, it was really strong. Um, you you commission a lot of wonderful illustrators as, mm. as part of your job. Mm -hmm. And it, it must be like really thrilling to work with such talent. Um, is being an art director a bit like being a like a visual magpie and, and mm -hmm. noting people's <laughs> work when you see it and having them in mind maybe for a particular job? And just waiting for a, a certain brief to yeah. drop and the right job to come along. It must be really exciting for you. Yeah, and I love commissioning um, illustration. Commissioning photography doesn't really happen very much anymore. I think um, budgets have sort of slightly restricted that. 
and also we've got a, a brilliant picture editor who finds great images. Um, but I keep a folder on my desktop full of screenshots of interesting artwork and the names next to it. I mean, typical kind of Instagram kind of <laughs> and then put it in a folder waiting for the right time or I'll, I'll then investigate and reach out to the person and see whether they'd ever be available. And, and you just know something will come up, something will match. Um, you know, the, um, the other thing that I've done recently that has no lettering on it, apart from a tiny bit on the spine, are those Murakami hardbacks. And I've got this big folder of Japanese illustrators that I've collected over a lot of years. And that was just like... Oh, <laughs> Finally. Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that they... You know, you take the OB or belly band off, and then it's again. It's those are those are the covers that I don't know stand the test of time. No, no lettering on them. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that they're beautiful objects, aren't they? And yeah. ultimately, I think people want these beautiful objects on their shelves and have them for mm. years to come. And I think ultimately, those are the ones which do stand the, the test of time, like you say. Um, mm. And it and it's and it's lovely. Quite often, when you're working on a serious design you get to give something the emphasis and, and have something be the, the hero, whether it's a, a photograph or an illustration or, or even maybe just some type as well. Um, and I think a real strength of the work that Vintage produces are your series designs, whether it's mm -hmm. commissioning an illustrator, as we mentioned, or photography or, or purely typographic. Um, for you, what makes a strong series look? Because you've 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 created you and your team have created so many consistently. Um, what, what oh, that's you... very kind of you. Um, yeah, it needs something that holds it all together. Uh, I suppose the Murakami hardbacks work because they have that panel, the belly band, um, with a flat, a different flat colour on, which allows the illustration. Um, to breathe and to be creative and be unusual, but they all hold together. So it's, and, and therefore the book has its own uh, identity that responds to the text and, um, you know, um, creates an essence of that work, but they all hold together. And that's sort of what you have to do with the series. I always think is that each book has to stand individually, but work as a whole, which is really tricky. Um, yeah, so that uh, that makes it easy when it has something like a belly band on it, for sure. And I think it's nice, and it's probably only something you get to do quite often on a series design to allow things to breathe, where you exactly. can sometimes be a bit more restrained with the type, because if it was a new title, obviously the expectation would be to have author and, and title a lot yes. larger, and it must be quite freeing in a way to, be able, to be able to, 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 to have those restrictions are no longer with thee. Yes. How, how do you find about that? Do you, do you find that you're restricted by the, the requests of size of lettering as well? Or Sometimes, just because it quite often cuts out any contrast within a design and you end up space. with everything. Yeah, <laughs> no, yes, literally space, <laughs> but everything's starting to work on the same level you, you mm. get. Because quite often... Obviously, a lot of the work I do is tends to be non-fiction. So yes. you've got the subtitle, which people want 
to work quite hard as well. Mm. And obviously, and quite sometimes you get these covers which initially might start with quite a lot of contrast, which creates a bit more visual interest. But then when everything, when the request for author name and subtitles all increase and everything starts working on the same level, you kind of stop seeing anything because it yes. just becomes a bit noisy. Yes. Um, yes. So yeah, I think that's definitely like a challenge working on the t- the types of brief that I get, and and when you're allowed a bit of freedom to do something a bit different, it's it yeah that for me those are the more successful covers and the ones that yes. I enjoy doing the most for sure. Yeah. But you know, it's it's obviously a, an ongoing yes. <laughs> kind of battle, I suppose, to to persuade people to to pick more interesting routes rather than like a defaulted idea of what something should and be. how do you do that because i mean all the stuff i've commissioned to you when it comes in are very, all very clever and i've not noticed you pushing me in one way or the other saying this is my favorite it's difficult i've 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 <laughs> I've, I've spoken spoken about this with a with a few other freelance designers on this podcast series of like the best way to give over work because there are obviously times where i would favor um, a particular um, option yeah. I'm, I'm sending yeah. in. And I have, in the past, I have tried to kind of enact a form of persuasion, like in the email itself. Um, I, a, I'm not sure if people find that helpful or not, um, because they're the ones that are having to manage this in-house. I'm not. It's, you know, I, I've been, I've, I've been charged just to kind of come up with options really. And, and also I'm conflicted like, should I just let the covers do the speaking for itself, really? Like, if I have to sit there explaining it to someone, maybe that means it's not actually working. Mm. Um, so I guess more often than not, yes. I will just send it and just see what happens and and hope that maybe they might select one of my favourites. But um, How often does that happen? Honestly, probably about 10, 20% of the time. Not that often. Oh, damn. <laughs> okay, in future, you've got to tell me what, what's your favourite. I'll try my best. <laughs> I, I, but then I, it's probably if I was working in house, it would probably it might end up being the same anyway. I, mm. I guess being freelance, you you're not in control of the process at all. You know, that's just that's well, just one of the aspects of the job. I guess it's um it's just the way it is. You you don't have any control about how the work's being presented or shown or responded to. Yes, I can see that that must be very frustrating. And in a sense, you, I suppose, can decide not to work for certain people. That's also your privilege, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. If you think then they're not doing a good job for you. Yeah, well, again, I I, I spoke... Uh, I spoke to Jamie Keenan on one of the episodes of mm-hmm. this podcast and he made a really good point, which made me laugh out loud, is that an art di- art director isn't there necessarily just to make your Instagram feed look good, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which, <laughs> which uh, I don't know, I was like, oh, that's true, actually. <laughs> but it'd be nice if they did. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice if they did. I think for me as well, oh. it's also just being a bit more select, like, being a bit more critical with my own work before I send you it. You mean as well. about yes, what with, you with send, what, what I choose to show? Mm-hmm. Because I think when I first went freelance, you have this kind of element of just eager to please, um, because you just want people to give you work, and you're yes. thrilled that yes. someone's giving you work, and you just want to send as. Ma- I, when I first went freelance, I used to send so many options to the art director. It was probably a bit like whoa, mm-hmm. um, but I think 
and then and then I was surprised when they would go with the more kind of conservative options mm-hmm. that I'd sent them and not the more kind of what I would consider a bit more interesting um options I'd send them. I guess in time I've tried to kind of narrow that down a bit. Yeah, I think that most designers do. You know, I I have quite a few options when I'm playing or experimenting, I will work up different routes. Yeah. And generally I'll I'll go I'll put them in a PDF, go through and look at them and then go and look at them the next day and think, no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to share those. <laughs> they better not pick those ones. And it's yeah. the same with a cover meeting. If you put ones in You've but got you, to expect that they could pick them. Yeah. You know? I guess in time I'm just trying to get to the point where and it is it's not always possible, but to get to the point where everything I'm sending, I'll be happy if they pick any of them. You know, that's the ultimate that's the ultimate challenge to yourself as a freelancer, I suppose. You know, I in the past I've sent off a PDF where I thought, Oh, I hope they don't choose that one. And um and then they inevitably do. And then you're like a left a bit flat but you know i guess if you can create at least a a bunch of designs which all hit a certain standard that you're that you want to deliver then you won't be disappointed when one of them gets gets chosen i guess It's, it's, it's kind of an ongoing balance with what a freelancer is thinking an art director is wanting to see and you know you're on the other side of it and yeah and and, and, and also doing the same thing with and my doing own work. Doing the same work. thing in house with your own work, <laughs> yes. yeah, and, and all the all on your team's work as well. And yeah, it's um, yeah, I guess that's that's the fun thing about being a designer as well is, is kind of critiquing your own work. And, mm. and obviously, with you with you and your team, you can help each other do that as well. Exactly, and um, and that kind of collaboration does help quite a bit. What's what's um, fascinating is when we work on group projects. And those they happen, I don't know, maybe once, maybe, maybe twice a year. Yeah. And everyone has a, the same voice, you know, sort of as far as important. So everyone sort of works on it a bit and we come together and we look at them as a group and we crit- critique them all and then go away and try what we've decided. And then they come back and just seeing how that series look develops and how it can be we've had one where we've all had to do the same illustration style but we're all doing it separately and how we achieve that I don't know but it's kind of extraordinary remarkable really yeah 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 but exciting and and I love that uh collaboration and everyone's sort of input as a group yeah When, when I first entered publishing it was the time when the Kindle was rising and ebooks were seen as this great threat to the to the physical book. Um that doesn't seem to be as much of a conversation now as it as it used to be. Um and, and many of your books often go the extra mile to create beautifully packaged objects, be it using things like sprayed edges and other finishes to to enhance a cover. How important to you is it that books remain a printed object going forward? And um, do you often have in mind how a book can come to life in different ways to draw in readers and ultimately give people something they want to keep on their shelves for years to come? I remember that time when the ebook was rising and that sort of slight fear that yeah, books would yeah. disappear. I can remember it. it was horrible. And I took this trip to New York and Chip Kidd. 
and um, Carol Carlson and I went and had pizza somewhere in this bar and he just went, I don't know why everyone's worrying about it. It will never happen. It will just never happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how wise he was. <laughs> um, I'm relieved. He was right. <laughs> yes, I'm relieved. I mean, it does seem like uh, books, physical books are so important to people. I I, I don't read on an e-reader. I like manuscripts, mostly reading manuscripts, of course, where I'm sort of folding over pages and writing notes and things like that. Um, and if I'm not and I've bought a book, it's the physical book that I like to take away with me on holiday. I am a big advocate of it feeling wonderful in your hands, you know, the smell of the paper when it's newly bought, um, the different print qualities um, I do, do do a lot of sprayed edges, slightly gone off sprayed edges at the moment. Um, <laughs> just the, if you can get the budget and make it work when it's harder and harder for there to be enough of a budget, you know, the handmaid's tail, the paper it was printed on, is just so lovely. Yes, lovely. If you yeah. get, it just makes um, you want to pick it up, doesn't yes, it? Yes, the, ta- the tactile feel of it. And I think books do tend to reflect the person's shelf that has them in their shelf. You know, you that personality yeah, when in you a go room, it house, seems to come you, through, doesn't it? You yeah, can tell. You just get drawn to someone's shelf, don't you? Just yeah. see what's on there. It tells you like a snapshot a little bit exactly. about them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you can sort of tell that. So I've always, um, um, it keeps, keeps me very interested if I can do something slightly unusual. Uh, for instance, and this is years and years ago now. I and I'm not sure I would have been be allowed to do it again. I painted on acetate. It was C by Tom McCarthy, and so I don't know if you remember that one. So it had acetate, and then it was only white on the acetate, including the text of the flaps, and then the boards underneath were black and a big C, and that was it. Yeah, but when you put the two together, you could read the text because the end papers inside the boards were black, so it all read. But when you took it off, I mean, that was very unusual. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It created an interest, and um, I was told it would only be printed once, and then it would just go right to a normal cover. <laughs> but they found that people bought it, and then it was reprinted five times before it disappeared. And I think, well, that that worked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, go out and get one before they disappear or some, you know, spread around like Twitter. A, like a thing, yeah. Yeah, so I think it does work. And when when you're, when there is that kind of, I don't know, like a doubt almost that like a something like that can really make a difference, like mm-hmm. that, does that give you more weight the next time one of these things comes around? I like around? to it's think like, so. It's like this, well... You, <laughs> This this worked last time, so yes. let's do it this time. And it gets, yeah. yeah. So uh, certainly, um, I think um, all the years when it has worked, it it works in your favour. Uh, the Murakami, you know, the ones with the belly bands on, that was said to me that you know if it doesn't work after the next printing, it will go just flat, and they have sold like hotcakes. I mean, they've sold really, really, really well. And um, hence the second batch. And again, I think 
yeah, I said it would work. <laughs> well, it justifies what you were saying, doesn't it, ultimately? And yes. Then, and then, again, plays back into, like, kind of trust in the, in the yes. process, I suppose. And then next time yes. around, you're, you're, when you're presenting something where you're doing something a little bit different and people are understandably feeling a little bit nervous about it, it's like, you know, just trust in the process, I guess, and it worked that time and there's no reason yes. why it wouldn't work I, this time. I do think as designers that that should be part of our job, trying to push boundaries like that. And it is especially difficult these days I mean I think post Brexit things budgets have got tighter you know printing is more expensive therefore it becomes much more difficult to get something like that through um and quite rightly because we've (laughs) got to make money (laughs) essentially why I'm there um I do think it was worth it when it works but you have to be sensible about the projects that you choose to do that on it's got to be appropriate as well. It can't just be doing it for the sake of it. It's got to be adding, yeah, it's got to be adding adding something, isn't it? For a cover, I mean, even with a sort of normal cover, there has to be a justification for what you put on the cover. That's what I mean about looking for the essence of the book. There's no point in just putting decoration on. I always feel there has to be a reason for what you do. And so those belly bands work because of the Japanese connection and it allows it to be slightly unique, not having any lettering on it. Um, you know, there always has to be a, a reason why. And then it makes more sense to me. Maybe that's just my my brain and how I feel um, justifying something. Yeah, I think I think that for me, that's where quite often the best design lies really is you're not doing it for the sake of it. You're doing mm. it because of X, Y, Z reason. And that backs you up really, doesn't it? You're not just doing it for the sake of it. It's not just doing it because it looks pretty. It's yeah. doing it because there's a thought process behind it and there's a rationale behind it. And I think design which does that always stands more chance of being approved, really. Yeah, or or even um, there's a certain... Uh, you understand what I mean? It sort of sings. It's like different things align and you can see there's a sort of halo effect yeah it come, of, everything of, comes together yeah. yeah yeah and you can you can always tell when there's there's just certain covers that do that and they just they stand out a mile compared yes. to the rest and they, the... they draw you to them in a bookshop don't they <laughs> amongst yeah. all the other books that are sort of echoes of each other Something that Penguin Random House does every year is to set student cover design briefs, mm. which university courses can use to form a project as part of their course. Or, but it's also something that's open to any student who wants to try cover design and enter work to be considered. Um, and I believe you've set briefs as part of that mm-hmm. of that project. Um, I know a lot of, of students listen to the podcast, so... What advice do you tend to give students who want to go down the path of design within publishing? Be resilient. It's really hard to get a foot in the door, I think. So um, keep trying. If that's what you really want to do, don't give up. See if you can go to talks by, by designers. Definitely go out, see things. Don't sit there and just look at the internet for inspiration um travel um see galleries bookshops secondhand bookshops i recommend going into those um they can be a great source of inspiration 
and something different, not what's on the table in your local bookshop, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, cinema, uh, museums, all sorts of things and collect and set yourself briefs. If you've left university and you're still looking to inch your way into publishing as a junior, just set yourself your own projects of your favourite books and, you know, go with collections of things. I, I really love talking to young designers that are passionate about all sorts of things to do with design. And I think it comes through. It's not just book covers that I'm wanting to see. I'm wanting to see that sort of desire to create, you know, an excitement about design. And I've heard you say how how you start a design can be terrifying, but you ultimately you mustn't be scared of failure. And I think that's mm -hmm. a really good message for students. And you, you yourself often start by sketching and doodling. Yes. And again, kind of coming back around to that idea of play and being creative mm -hmm. and exploration are like are essential to creating ideas. Um, and if you bring that energy and excitement um, into those initial stages, like you'll get there. So just keep pushing. So I think that, I think that was a really good message as well. I always think it's fatal to just sit there and first of all you do is bring up a screen and start in InDesign or Photoshop, I mean, Procreate, whatever. But I, I do think getting away from it and making circles and notes and, you know, connections, words, it just helps start that mood board of um, and then having it, actually, that's what I normally do is then I go and create a sort of mood ball of things. It could be these illustrators or those ones. And I think these words mean that it should be blue and orange and, you know, and then I look at it all and that's when I start. And it just helps having that foundation there. I've heard you say that in your office, like these things end up kind of taking over your, oh, God, of, your yeah. office space. Yeah. I can imagine it's a little bit like a... A little bit like those kind of, you know, like a cheesy kind of t TV police show. Where yes, you've got these that's kind of, me. These and then I use maps. these great big lines. <laughs> 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 yeah. It, when I had an office in the old building, my there was a wall in front of me or a big window. And then it would just, when, when there were big pressures on for huge, big books, I would start to move towards the window to try to think, where am I going with this? <laughs> Stick it all up and I'll, I'll have, a, have a direction. It's kind of like that. And also it's quite good. You can stand back and squint and you can see, oh, yeah, it has to be black and grey. Oh, yes. It kind of gives you a sense of like a colour palette almost. If you're, if you're doing research into a particular subject, you can just, you can just probably just squint at it vaguely. Yes. Again. I'm getting reds yeah. coming through or something, exactly. something like that. Exactly. And yeah. also the, the fear of how do I start? That's just such an awful thing. Um, so at least you're doing something when you start to gather stuff and it gives yeah. you the, your brain room to formulate ideas. I think in amongst that as well, it's not always just starting. It's it's feeling like you're working through something and, and you don't feel like no, anything's happening. And it's like, ah. Oh. And um, for me, I also like kind of, step taking a step back sometimes as well and just going back to basics do you um sort of i mean obviously you have to at the end of the day when um you've got to walk away but do you 
sometimes shut it down and do something else and then come back like the next day or the day after just because you need that kind of distance and space to be able to see what works what doesn't yeah i think so i think again that's one of the good things about what we all do is is that because we're not necessarily just working on one brief you can take a bit of time out sometimes on a particular brief put it down for a day or two and then work on something else and quite often i think sometimes ideas come to you when you're almost not thinking about it and it's just like kind of mm. ticking over at the back of your brain and you might, I find you, that amazing you might, you, might, you might be working on something else or you could be yeah. doing the washing up or whatever it might be and then all of a sudden ah, oh, something clicks yeah and sometimes having a bit of breathing space from something actually ends up leading to to finding yes. a solution yeah i've had that just recently where i've like oh my god how am i going to answer that one and suddenly overnight it's almost like your brain's been filing going through the filing system or yeah, something it takes time to catch up or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh i know what i'll do <laughs> yeah it's such think, a relief um, when that happens as well and and you think or walking that's quite a good one as mm, well isn't it where it, i think it's my i think it's um comes back to that mindfulness thing doesn't yeah. it is um i've never been very good at mindfulness i've i've i've, no, I've tried either. to i've tried to do it um in quite a few guises over the years but um going for a going for a walk in nature generally is it is the best way for me because you you switch off from thinking yeah. about things like work and then subconsciously you're um you, you might be but it it, it allows your brain the chance to just relax i guess mm. and then and not think, panic and then and file yeah. yeah and that's that's the other thing about that sort of going out or flicking through books or yeah. it, your brain is somewhere else or you're just looking at other things just going back to um working with students um mm-hmm. I, i've I, I i get to do it now and again and i'm sure you do when you talk to students and they can obviously get a lot from yourself, but do you, do you get anything from mm. viewing students' work? Um, because more often than not, they're they're generally younger, and um, their their kind of cultural touch points and references yes. can be quite different from ours. And they might look at a, a design problem in a completely different way from us. Absolutely. So do, you, do, do you learn anything when you speak to teach students? Yes, and it's and it's. Um... The questions they ask you as well, hmm. I think, are are sort of um, really interesting because they're di- they've got a completely different perspective, and then it makes you think about things. I mean, that's what people generally say. It it um, is a source of inspiration to your own work and perspective. Yeah. I think, yeah. and um, yeah, it's really exciting seeing student shows at, at that time of year and all these new people coming through. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Is there um, is there any kind of problem or issue in publishing that we should be talking about more that often isn't um, in 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 your mind? The pressure to create the same but different, I think, yeah, out there. Every imprint wants a very big book, and so there'll be the briefing. You know, we've spoken about the briefing and um. Recently, I went into um, my local bookshop and stood in front of a fiction table and looked at it all. And it was all like the same colours, the same technique for the book cover. 
and it was all like it was shouting by me, by me. And I got overwhelmed and walked out. And I was just thinking <laughs> ev- everything's the same. And of course, it isn't the same. We know that from the ABCD Awards every year. There are these fantastic, brilliant covers by lots of different designers. But um, there's lots of tables of very similar covers. I mean, there seems to be, um, you know, trends. And I think we've been in a trend for quite a while of bright, flat fiction. Yeah. And I think we should be coming out of that. Coming hopefully. out of that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think we could even see a bit of photography coming back. There's been illustration around for a while. And um, I suspect that the success of uh, Trespassers will have quite an influence in that because editorial will feel safe in briefing for a, a, photo- a photograph, particularly even maybe a black and white photograph. It's it's interesting. It just takes one book to tip it in a slightly different direction. And then the, the gradually you'll see more photographs coming through and then another wave will come. And it's interesting as well that that image you're describing of walking to the bookshop and being confronted with this wall of books where everything kind of essentially looks the same. I think it is un- incumbent on designers as well to recognise that and then in, in kind of go into the attitude of, well, if everything looks like that, I'm going to do the opposite. And then hopefully that will instigate the kind of yeah. the change that you described that's probably needed as well and um, just starts refreshing things. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a tipping point that it reaches, a, um, you know, a trend. And we're, in a few months' time, we'll see lots of different things or, I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> and trends are so funny as well in our particular corner of design because we're yeah. designing ahead of time. Exactly. And then um, whilst, when the book's actually out, sometimes the trend's been completely saturated and it's 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 over almost and um again i'd hope that people could maybe not focus too much on trends as well yes well it's it's always um uh, a danger isn't it because we do work so far ahead and you know i've i've been in the studio even last week discussing a route with a designer and them saying well this would be quite good as a illustration solution it doesn't look like everything else but it still links to it i mean we don't want to be tired before we've even come out um so i i think we're on a slight turn maybe yeah let's hope so thanks so much for joining me today suzanne it's been a fascinating insight into how you and your team approach covers but also speaking with someone who works in-house and and and, and getting an understanding of how the cover machine kind of process works as well so yeah thank you so much well it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you it's been really interesting hearing your responses too and um you know i wish you all the luck with this podcast thanks so much to suzanne for taking the time out to speak with me it was such a great opportunity to speak about the process at vintage but also how she approaches creativity more generally and how she sees the cover design landscape both now and going forward. To see a selection of Suzanne's work, please visit her website at suzannedean.co.uk. You can also follow Suzanne on Instagram at suzannelldean. If you don't already, I'd highly recommend following the Vintage Design Team on Instagram. 
as they're really good at regularly posting covers. But I think you also get a great sense of the quality of work that's produced by Suzanne and her team. So make sure to follow them at Vintage Books Design. Links for all of those are also in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow Cover Meeting wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you can take the time, please leave a rating or review as it really helps. Follow Cover Meeting on Twitter, Instagram, and now threads at Cover Meeting Pod for news about upcoming episodes. Cover Meeting was hosted by Steve Leard and produced by James Ead of beheard.org.uk. Thanks again for listening and I hope you join again soon for another episode. Thank you.